0: Life is uncertain. <laughs> Do you agree? Earthquakes in Haiti, the Taliban in Afghanistan, hurricanes and flooding in the east, drought and fires in the west, COVID, Delta variants, vaccinations, booster shots, the economy, inflammation, politics, Democrats, Republicans, Trump, China, Russia, Russia. Black Lives Matter, riots, racism, child pornography, human trafficking, slavery, refugees, poverty, famine, war, genocide, drugs, alcoholism, death, dementia, cancer, toothaches, stomach aches, heartaches, marriage, divorce, technology and inventions, self-driving cars, missions to Mars, the decline of Christianity, and that took me two minutes to come up that list so we could add, right? What's next? We don't know. We can't predict and we can't control whatever's next. That's the uncertainty of life. Did you know that the average child spends four to six hours a day in front of a screen? The average teenager can spend up to nine hours in front of a screen. Granted, some of these numbers have grown since covid The average adult spends more than three and a half hours just on their phone. (laughs) Uncertainty, in other words, makes us crave certainty. It makes us reach for something that we can control with our thumbs or a remote or something that we can expect I can expect the story will go like this to a degree. You'll have a beginning, middle, and end. I can expect that when I type this in on Google, I will get a lot of results. I can expect knowledge when I look something up on my phone. I can expect somebody on the other end of a number. Uncertainty makes us crave something certain, and we've seen exactly what it is that we reach for in our society when you just look at the numbers of, The time we spend on these things. So what we're going to see tonight, what our professor in Ecclesiastes is going to tell us, is that our lives need direction. They need direction because we live in distraction and delusion. We need direction because we live in distraction and delusion. So here's where we've been. Tonight we're starting in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. This marks the halfway point. We are now, I know it bugs me too that it's not chapter 7, like a nice clean break. But there you go. Chapter 6, verse 10 starts part 2 of our professor's uh, course, Vanity of Vanities, for us. Right? This is our college-level wisdom. Vanity of Vanities, all is vanity. Uh, he's told us that vanity is what life is. And what he means is everything under the sun is vanity. It doesn't mean everything is meaningless or vanity, but life outside of Eden is not the way that God made it. Life outside Eden is vanity. And you can define vanity simply by looking at the first humans who lived outside Eden. Because the Hebrew vanity is Hevel, and that's also the word for the name Abel. Abel is a symbol of vanity. Vanity. Abel lived a righteous life, yet bad things happened to him. Abel lived a godly life, yet he had a short life. Abel is the epitome of vanity. And this incomprehensibility, this brevity of life, and this uncertainty of life, modeled in Abel, we see in all things of life outside of Eden. So, yes, the professor sounds negative at times. But when you think about it, he's not really being negative, he's being real. Is not the world a negative place outside of Eden? I actually ran into some um, some uh, ladies at the tea and coffee exchange in the village who who have worked with this, the Lake Red Christian School in the past and like, oh my gosh, we haven't seen you in a while. And we caught up. And of course, the conversations soon turned, soon turned into the craziness of the world. Seems like all conversations go there at some point. Um, And then it dawned on me that they haven't had the privilege you guys have of hearing Ecclesiastes in such an uncertain and negative world. And I got to share with them, well, actually, this is kind of cool because Ecclesiastes just tells us straight up, this, what did you expect? This is life outside Eden. But the professor in Ecclesiastes is instructing us to grab hold on the good that God gives us in this uncertain, crazy, negative world. And that that's where we should be focusing our attention. Not trying to take control of what's out of control, but receiving what he's given us. Because what else can you do under the sun? What else can you do if life is brief and uncertain? This is actually a book of good news in this crazy world. So he's told us that everything is vanity. Um, So part one, he emphasized the brevity of life. Life is short, and everything we do in it doesn't last. (laughs) It's really negative. But then you're like, but that's refreshing to know, that I'm not supposed to try to outrun the brevity of life. And then he takes us through examples of this, like in chapter 2. He shows us that we try to outrun the brevity of life with a flurry of activity in pleasures and in projects. Maybe we can do stuff that will make us last forever, or at least be remembered forever then in chapters 3 and 4, he showed us that the anxiety of time presses on us because we know life is brief. So time becomes a becomes thing that we have to manage. We have to, we have to get everything manipulated within time. And he showed us the folly of that too. And then um, in chapters 5 and 6, this was last week, um, our last solution is, okay, we desire prosperity and wealth. Maybe that will help buy off this fear, this anxiety of the brevity of life but he shows that that also, there is absolutely no guarantee in prosperity that it will help you have a better life whatsoever. Now in part two, he's going to turn his attention to the uncertainty of life, the fact that we can't grasp it, we can't own it. Um, You're going to hear him say, in ten different verses, he's going to say something to the degree of, um, well, why don't we actually look at it here? In chapter 8, verse 17. 8, verse 17. Then I saw... So this is, by the way, this is our last verse tonight, so you'll see where we're going to end. Eight seventeen says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You hear that? In one verse, he three times says, you cannot. (laughs) There are limitations on our being outside of Eden. So there are certain things that will forever be uncertain. Yes, brothers and sisters, even in Christianity, we will still have huge swaths of darkness and mystery and be uncertain about things. Christianity was never guaranteed that you would have everything certain. There's truth, there's clarity, but there are lots of things that we, if we're honest, have absolutely no certainty about. And um, so 10 verses in the second half of the book, he's going to say things like, You cannot know, you cannot discover. There's limitations on us. So because of this reality, our lives need direction because we live in distraction and delusion. So that's how it ends. You can't know. Now let's look at chapter 6, verse 10. And um, he's again pouring on to us the reality of life's uncertainty. 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For what can tell man what will be after him under the sun? <laughs> Uncertainty is simply a reality of life. Between 8.17 and what we just read in 6.10-12, through 12, there's a lot that we cannot know. And verse 12 really sums this up. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives his few days on this earth? Who knows what's good for a man? This is this is how deep the uncertainty outside of Eden goes. We cannot even discern for ourselves what is good for our souls. Did you hear that culture? <laughs> We cannot discern for ourselves. We can't possibly, there is no certainty that I can know for sure and find out for myself what is good for myself. I need someone beyond myself to look at me and say, this, Brandon, is what is good for your soul. And so that is what the professor is going to do. He's going to give us direction because of the distraction and delusion that we find in the world and in our lives. So he's going to step and say, you will never guess what's good for your soul. You would never seek this out on your own. So let me tell you what is good for your soul. Much like if you play a sport or you're learning an instrument or anything else you're trying to master and grow in, you need an instructor, you need a coach, you need a teacher, you need a mentor. If when I was playing baseball as a youth, I had to have people tell me Take a hundred swings a day at minimum, or you will never be able to hit a 90-mile-an-hour pitch. It has to be muscle memory. Do you think that that was the first thing I wanted to do when I got home and finished my homework, was take a hundred repetitive swings with no balls flying at me? Of course not. I actually broke a window once. I actually took it seriously and did it so many times. Sweat made the bat fly out of my hands, and I broke a window. It was fun. Um, Where was I going? Oh, we need people, we need coaches we need mentors, we need instructors to tell us this is what's good for you because you won't seek this out on your own so the professor gives us the unlikely director death he invites us to be guided and instructed by death now we won't go too deep into this because next week talks about death as well and we will save most of the comments for death that week I know you can't wait, can you? Um, so let's look at chapter seven. Here's where death will direct us. Chapter seven, verses one through six. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, ointment was uh, some; it was considered a luxury to have on you. It makes you smell good. It also cleans you. There's a lot of benefits to it. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. Really? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Really? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Seriously? For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. See, you wouldn't seek this out on your own, would you? Verse 5, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. (laughs) Last time you wanted to be rebuked? Last time you wanted to listen to something on the radio? I mean, come on, which have you been choosing? For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. The crackling of thorns under a pot, that is the laughter of fools. So use your imagination a little bit. You get these little twigs with the thorns on them. You put them under the pot to heat it up, right? You light those twigs. You get a blaze real quick. You turn to bring the ingredients to the soup to put in the pot, and the flame is out. Because those thorns don't burn for very long. That is the laughter of the fool. They may have a jolly good time, but the brevity of life is a reality, and it will come to a swift end. That's what he's saying. Therefore, the wise man will allow death to be his teacher and his instructor. That's why he says it is better, versus verse uh, one, the second part, the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's not because death is better than birth. He's not against life. What he's saying is that death makes for a better preacher than the crib. The crib can show you all oh, life is beautiful and wonderful, but it won't tell you how to live. The coffin, oh, it's morbid. It's awful. And the wise will see that and will be instructed, I will be there one day, and I want to live in such a way that I get there well. This is what he's trying to show us, is that a real serious look at death will teach us how to live. If you want to live well, you must learn how to die well. No, other way. If you learn how to die well, you will learn how to live well. That's what he's trying to instruct us to. So those who've had close encounters with death, those who have been told that their days are short, have suddenly found life more meaningful. And they found the depth of life. And they're living lives with intention. Whereas when we ignore death and try to block that out and mute our ears to what he's trying to say to us, we live like fools. as if. And think about this. How often do we live as if we're going to keep living for another 200 years? If we were realistic about the fact that there is such shortness to life, we would allow death to instruct us. In fact, Steve Jobs said that he would look in the mirror every day and ask himself, If I died today, would I be satisfied with what I'm doing today? Now, I can't say that Steve Jobs was exactly the wisest person in the eyes of Scripture, but that's not a bad idea. To embrace death teaches you how to live today. So our direction from death because it will teach us how to live. That's why. You need this director. You need this coach because you wouldn't look for this. Instead, we would go to the house of feasting. But Christianity has always taught us about the house of mourning. And this is why, I know it's just me and I'm taking on my journey because that's what I do. I take you guys with whatever I'm into and whatever I'm doing. Um, But like why last year and we'll keep on, um, when Lent comes, We make a big deal of it, not because we're Catholic, but because this is a tremendous gift that the church has passed down for thousands of years to us that we have a season of mourning and looking at death and saying, life is not all feast. Life is about serious examination and letting death, especially Christ's death, instruct us. But again, more on death next week and why death is not something to be feared in the same way that we usually think of it. Um, Okay, so that's our director. Death. Rather surprising. But now we got to look at the distraction, right? We need direction in our lives because life is full of distraction and delusion. So what are the distractions? What is death trying to direct us through? What is going to try to pull us away and ignore death and mute our minds to it? These are the distractions. Starting in verse 7. First, Corrupt money to ease our oppression. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Yeah, money can make you forget about death, because it's going to make a lot of your problems go away. It's not all of them, but it's going to make some of it a little more comfortable, right? Second distraction. Proud impatience. Verse 8. Better is the beginning of a thing, I'm sorry, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So we always want to start things because it's more exciting than finishing things. And the person who's ignoring death, the fool, the person who's distracted by frivolity, is going to constantly be going from, oh, this is exciting, and then, oh, no, now it's this thing, and oh, now it's this thing. These are ways of ignoring death. Because when you have to see something to the end, you have to suffer with it, you have to go through it, you have to bear with it patiently, it might take more time than you meant to, and you might be thinking, I'm not accomplishing as much as I had hoped to, but by going through with it, you are embracing the fact that I am a mortal, limited human being, whereas bouncing around is never going to teach us that. It's only going to teach us the thrill of life, which cannot last. Third distraction, foolish anger, verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Why is anger a distraction? Because anger is a way that we find control when we lose control of everything else. And it's ironic because anger is actually the loss of self-control. But somehow when we're in the moment, it feels right. It feels like everything's getting away from me. So if I insert myself like this, I will gain some control again. But it's a foolish path because now you've lost yourself too. This is a distraction to death. Jesus preached, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, look at all that's going and they're losing control of things and things are uncertain and they just say, All right, I will embrace and receive and see what God's going to teach me through this out-of-control circumstance. That's the difference. The fourth distraction is in verse 10, and it is misguided nostalgia. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? (laughs) Oh, man, we do this all the time. Do you remember music in the 80s or whatever? Do you remember the tent days? Oh, how many times I've heard that growing up. If you don't know what the tent days are, you're, you're, you're. Yeah, never mind. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Ooh. So when we say, in other words, remember the old golden days? It is not from wisdom that we ask that. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness, and then they wanted to kill Moses because suddenly they had cravings for all the melons and leeks and onions that they had in Egypt. That's a modern, that's an old way of saying, in and out and French fries and meat and non-vegan diet, I guess, because they weren't eating a lot of meat in the wilderness. Uh, they complained and wanted to kill Moses. Talk about misguided nostalgia. Wait, really? You want to go back to Egypt because of the food? Do you remember everything else that was horrible? And that's the problem with nostalgia is that it's misguided. Nostalgia is actually a longing for heaven, for Eden, for the future, that we mistake for longing for the past. Because we are not certain about what lies ahead. We know it's good and grand, but we've never seen it. So that longing gets diverted to what we have experienced and the fool is always looking back why cuz there's a lot of certainty about the past it happened it's not changing on me but the future i don't that's very uncertain that's very uncertain and so he's saying nostalgia can be a distraction we need direction in life and so those are the distractions so instead of those he would rather that we focus on the mysterious and inexplicable ways of God. Focus on him and the things you can't understand about him. That's what he says in verse 11 through 14. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Um, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. For the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. It's just sort of an aside there on wisdom's good, so grab it. Now he talks about considering God in verse 13. Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Consider that. If you're getting distracted, focus on what you can't explain about God and accept him as the ineffable, unexplainable, mysterious God beyond all knowledge and reason. Can God lift? Can God lift, you know, can God make a rock so big he cannot lift it? Don't drive yourself crazy with those questions. But he's saying, get yourself back to uncertainty is okay. Because we don't know everything about God. We don't. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So the uncertainty of life is to make us remember that we're human. And God is not. Those are the distractions. Now he talks about the delusions. We need direction because of the distractions of life and because of the delusions we have about life. We have two delusions. We have delusions about morality and authority. And these two take up the rest of our text. So first, morality. Because what we do often is we turn to morals, we turn to righteousness, we turn to good deeds, because we think that if I can accumulate enough goodness in my life, good things will come back to me. It's a sort of weird Christian karma, that I can't control a lot, but I can control doing good things, and then we somehow secretly expect that good things will come back. But the professor, knowing our foolish hearts, says, "Ah, uh, I've tried that, and it doesn't work. Morality cannot bring certainty. That's essentially what he's going to say. So verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. See that? Morality can be arbitrary. You can't find certainty in, I've got good works going. Verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Or that should possibly read, why should you dismay yourself? What he's saying there is not, hey, whoa, tone down on your zeal for God, man, whoa, settle down. He's not saying that. He's saying, do not become so invested in righteousness for the sake of it delivering you from the bad things of life. Do not become so enamored with religion that somehow you think it's going to erase the uncertainties of reality. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't put your hope and your trust in those things. Why should you destroy or bring yourself to dismay? Because that's what it's going to do. You're going to bend over backwards, serving God. And then one day you're going to find out you have cancer. And then you're going to raise your fist at God and say, but I did all of this. How dare you? Why destroy yourself? Why even go through the heartache? You can't find certainty in morality because outside Eden, life can be very arbitrary Verse 17, be not overly wicked. So on the other end now, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So obviously it's not good to say, well, it doesn't matter, I'll just sin. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In other words, whether good things happen or bad things happen, the one who fears God will in the end eventually be okay. So, um, morality can't bring certainty because life is more arbitrary than we like to admit. Second, morality can't bring certainty because while morality is better than immorality, it's still not enough. That's in verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So, yep, morality is good. Remember, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom and righteousness go hand in hand. So it's often interchangeable. But on the other side, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. (laughs) So, yes, while morality is good, you'll never have enough of it to bring the kind of certainty in your life that you need. And then third reason why morality can't bring certainty is that um, the immorality of others will remind you that you're immoral to yourself. <laughs> You'll never find the morality you're looking for. So verse 21, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest, your, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So one day you're going to hear someone say something about you or assume something about you and you're like, that's not true! But then you're going to remember, oh my goodness, I assume things about people too. And then you're like, oh, I'm not moral. And it's, he's just showing us the folly of putting our hopes in this. And now finally, um, morality can't bring us certainty because morality, the morality needed for certainty, to have absolute certainty, is so impossible. You basically have to be God to have that kind of certainty. That's what he's going to say in a lot of words here. Verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. He couldn't attain it. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nuts and whose hands are fetters. Do you remember the seductress woman in the Proverbs? That's what he's alluding to, the one who seduces men. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, verse 27, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand. I found, but a woman among all these, I have not found. See this alone. I found that God made man upright and they have sought out many schemes. Um. Okay. So in a one in a thousand, he found upright one in a thousand men and then zero out of a thousand women. Ah, <laughs> that's my heart. It's like, a, you get to this when you rip out your hair. Like, why do you have to teach things like this in the Bible? Very, very simple and very quick. Um, There's a couple ways to read that, but the one I thought was most interesting is Solomon had a thousand wives. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And they they were the ones that led him astray from the Lord. So, he's not saying that there is absolutely no righteous woman. In his experience, he's just saying, look, nobody's righteous. One in a thousand men, and then it's like one upping that. And no women. Not that necessarily women themselves can't be righteous and men are more righteous. His point is, only one out of a thousand. Now, let's just say no, none at all. And of course, his experience with women has soured him. So, uh, that's one way you can read that. Um, there's other ways too. You can talk about that later, but I'm sure you guys aren't too hung up on it. I hope. Um, but yeah, that's what he's saying. The kind of morality you need for certainty is so impossible to reach. Solomon's like, basically, I haven't found anyone who can attain to that. Because though God made man upright, verse 29, they have sought out many schemes. They have turned aside to their own ways. There you go. So, morality can't bring us certainty. Now, our second delusion is authority. Authority can't bring us certainty. He starts with human authority, then he moves to divine authority. Human authority in chapter 8. Verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Yep, wisdom and righteousness is great. It changes you. I say, verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do not be hasty. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Okay, so he's telling us, look, live a righteous life, and more than likely you'll be on the right side of the king's decisions. But the bottom line is the king can do what he wants. So you have no certainty in the king's authority. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit. In other words, when he die, it goes. Or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war. You can't say, I'm out. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it wickedness doesn't say oh you're done sinning too bad all this I observed while applying my, my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt yep the king has authority but you have no certainty that doesn't you're not going to bring certainty uh, just look at our American politics and I think it explains itself now divine authority strangely that also won't bring you certainty in life and here's how 8, verse 10 then i saw the wicked buried they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things so they're godly they're praised by people but they're wicked this also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So what's he saying? Well, we see wickedness all the time. and We're like, God, why don't you judge them? Why don't you do something about this? Why are they getting away with it? In fact, why are they prospering? We don't get it. That's That's a lot of uncertainty. But then he gives us hope. The professor then says in verse 12 that, look, even though a sinner prolongs his life, I know that it'll be well with him who fears God. Why? Because God is going to judge. But here's the uncertainty. We don't know when, and we don't know exactly what measure of judgment. We just know it says he's coming to judge. That's all we know. In verse 13, he continues the same thought, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So he comes back to that arbitrariness of the world. Yep, sometimes bad things are happening to you and good things are happening to that jerk down the street. It doesn't make sense. And I commend joy, verse 15. This is his hope for us. I commend joy... For man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him to his toil, to the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Fourth time, every sermon we've done in Ecclesiastes, he's mentioned this. So this is the fourth time he's told us, All you can do is receive the gifts of God and enjoy them. Because in enjoying them, we return return them to him in thanksgiving. That's all we can do. Stop trying to master the universe, master your life, master the world, master your problems, and receive what God gives you. That's the gift of God to us. So he's not saying party like there's no tomorrow because this is all there is. He's saying receive and appreciate what God gives us because this is what there is despite the craziness of the world and despite the uncertainty. There's one true certainty here. God is giving us good gifts. It's up to us to to see them and receive them and thank him for them by enjoying them. And then the last two concluding verses, 8-16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so we we discover things like, yeah, we got to the moon. Oh, we're getting to Mars, and like all these things, like we're so awesome. And God is going to be like, but did you consider doing this to the rocket, and then you could have got to Pluto? I'm like, oh, no matter how hard we try, we can't figure it all out. Um, so here's what he's calling us to. He, I don't know if you noticed this, but he sprinkled in this little moments of, of certainty. Despite all the uncertainty, he gave us some things. And we just talked about one of them. One of, he wants us to focus on the things that we can focus on, the certainties. And one of them is that God gives us good gifts. That's one thing to focus on. Another thing to focus on is that, yep, life may seem arbitrary, but focus on, like the creeds say, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Focus on that, okay? Don't let the prosperity of the wicked drive you nuts or the suffering of your life drive you nuts. All the old dead saints who've written lots of things have lots to say about how suffering is going to be really good for your soul in some weird way. Also focus on the fact, like chapter 7, verse 1 through 7 told us, Everyone will die, including you and including me. We will all die. Focus on that because it will teach you. Also focus on the fact that there is actually something worse than death. Taxes. I'm just kidding. Um, Benjamin Franklin had it come in there, right? Two certainties in life. Uh, no, 7 verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. A woman whose heart, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. And the sinner is taken by her. Sin is more bitter than death. Focus on that. Man, there's so much to be preoccupied with there. We don't have to trash talk everything we see going on in the world. Just look at your soul. There is something far worse than uncertainty and death happening in me. And that is that I'm a sinner and God wants through the power of his Holy Spirit and grace through Christ to eradicate this from my life. That's something to focus on. And then finally, 7 verse 29, focus on this. Seven twenty-nine. see this alone I found that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All we like sheep have gone astray. Focus on that. That word scheme, by the way, it, uh, I looked it up because I was like, what does he mean by scheme? It's so the third time he uses it. The first two times it just means, means reason. He's trying to figure out the reason of things. But this last word scheme, it's used only two times in the entire Bible. And it means um, it means device or invention. The other time it's used is to talk about something that they engineered for the city walls of Jerusalem, a device or an invention. So, God has made man upright, but we have sought out many devices, many inventions, many engines, the ingenuity of human creativity. And that word device grabbed me because we literally today are turning away from the Lord because of many devices iPads, Androids, cell phones. You go down. They, they, you know, they gave up, and they just say, "Turn off your devices." It's too many to list. And when I told you guys about the numbers, the hours spent on devices and screens, it was to show that, look, in the uncertainty of life, this is what we're reaching for. We're reaching for our phone. We're reaching for something that pacifies us, that soothes us. So here's something really interesting. Well, first, uh, the Book of Common Prayer um, has uh, there's a daily and evening there's a daily morning and evening confession in which the lines say this. Some of the lines say, "We have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts." It's exactly what Solomon is saying we've turned astray because we've turned to our own devices. Um, so, speaking of devices, think about this. The phone, for the average American, the phone is the first thing they see when they wake up. It's the last thing they see when they go to sleep. For the average American. I mean, that's, and I was, yeah, just, I, most of us, it's like, oh, set my alarm, good night, wake up. Oh, some of us don't do this, praise God. But, and then some are like, oh, notifications when we wake up. Like, look at what happened in the world while I slept. Hmm. Um, and in between, beginning our day and ending our day with the device, The average American picks up that device 58 times. And most of those times are for less than two minutes. 70% of those times we pick it up is for less than two minutes. In other words, what it means is you're not picking it up to be productive. You're picking it up to distract yourself. To numb the terror of death and of the uncertain world. We don't think of it that way when we pick it up. But that's what's happening. That's what's driving us to distraction. Devices are turning us away from the uprightness that God is made us for. So here's what we learn: In the uncertainty of life, we are reaching out for technology, for devices, and not for God. Reconsider. Morning. Do you pray first thing in the morning? Or is that when it's convenient? After I've checked some things, some emails? Do we finish our day with prayer? Because we do begin and end our day with devices. Oh, and also, in between beginning and ending our day with prayer, how many times do we call upon God? How many times do we reach out to him? 58 times? I wish. Psalm 143 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land, reaching out for him. St. Peter of Damascus, 8th century dude, he said this, which is stunning. It is more necessary to learn to call on the name of God than it is to breathe. Are we reaching out 58 times a day? St. Mark, the ascetic, 5th century if a man disregards the commandment about prayer, he then commits worse acts of disobedience, each one handing him over to the next like a prisoner. You you skip prayer? You reach out to other things instead? It's like, okay, from one vice to another vice to another vice. You're just being handed down like um, a hot potato. I don't know. I can't think of something. Um, and interestingly, too, Vice and device, right? There's, there's something there. Because a vice is something that bites us. It holds onto us. It's a sin that clings to us. A device is something that also it, it, it has mastery. It grabs us. It, it can even have mastery over us. Uh, St. Mark the Ascetic also said, Undistracted prayer, we keep calling out to God, undistracted prayer is a sign of love for God, but careless or distracted prayer is a sign of love for pleasure. So God made us upright, but we have sought out many devices. So if adults spend an average of three and a half hours on their phones a day, that's over a month, a year. And by the way, that's all generations. Don't think, oh, those are 20-year-olds. The average here is that the average adult, all generations, spends over a, over a month, a year on their phone. Okay, consider that. Now consider this. This puts us to shame. I want to blush. I might be. I don't know. I have a beard, though. At 12 minutes a day, 12 minutes a day, one can read the Bible in a year at an out loud pace. 12 minutes a day, the Bible in a year. That's it. 12 minutes. At 48 minutes a day, at an out loud pace, you can read the Bible through four times in a year. What are we reaching for to pacify the uncertainties of life? What are we reaching for in the 58 moments of the day when we need help? Better to wake up calling out to God. Better to go to sleep calling out to God. Better to reach our hands to him in prayer 58 times a day. Because that is where we will find guidance in this life outside Eden. And to make this real simple and practical for us, end it here. I know what I'm saying, you know, because I've, I've been where you are, and you hear it, and like, it's overwhelming, it's like burdening, it's like, uh, guilt, I'm supposed to pray more. Yeah, you should. Read your Bible. Yes, you should. But let's just do something very simple. Let's do some baby steps here. The reaching for the phone 58 times a day, or whatever it is for you, you can do that in prayer very easily. When you're in line at Stater Brothers, because it's always terrible there and there's always a way too long line at Stater Brothers. When you're in line there and you groan because for some reason you really thought you were going to be the first one in that checkout aisle, it happens every time. I don't know why. I'm always surprised that I'm like the 10th person in line. But anyways, when that happens, look around you. Everyone is pulling out a phone in that line, right? What are you doing? I'm bored. I'm going to, Text my wife. I'll be home in 15 hours because I'm at Stater Brothers. You could do that. That's not going to help. You're angry, right? You're just venting. Why don't you try prayer there? Oh, come on. No, no, seriously. There are certain prayers. I don't know what they're actually called. I think I just adopted the, the term arrow prayers because Charles Spurgeon referred to arrow prayers. And they're these quick little shots. Um. Some classic ones are Psalm 70, verse 1. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. What if you take that great prayer, and that's what you draw on frequently throughout the day? You're walking to your car. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. That person is taking way too long moving down the aisle, and they're not giving you room to get around them. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. Or another great one is gladden the heart of your servant for to you, I lift up my soul, O Lord. When you're just doing hard stuff, I don't think I need to be doing this right now, but my wife says so. Gladden the heart of your servant for to you, I lift up my soul. Gladden the heart of your servant for to you, I lift up my soul. I feel better. No, not again. Gladden the heart of your servant for to you, I lift up my soul. Or there's a the classic in the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the beautiful, most beautiful prayers, because in its succinct form, it is the gospel. Evoking the name of Christ and pleading for mercy, which is what every single person who's healed by him does. Lord, have mercy on me, I'm blind. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what if we got in the pattern of these arrow prayers 58 plus times a day, and we reach out to God rather than to other devices in order to find the certainty we crave in this uncertain life? Well, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever